Welcome to Book Talk with Kara Putman. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Kara Putman, the award-winning, best-selling author of more than 30 novels. I write romantic legal suspense and World War II romance, but I read voraciously. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of my favorite author friends as we talk books, writing, and life. Be sure to check back frequently for new episodes. This podcast is sponsored by Revell Fiction. Don't miss Revell's latest historical romance reads, full of sweeping romance, rich history, and vibrant international settings. Learn more about The Rose and the Thistle, The Sound of Light, and The Maid of Belly McCool by heading to bakerbookhouse.com, where you can receive 30% off and free U.S. shipping on your purchase. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Book Talk with Kara. And I'm thrilled to have three of my writing friends back this time. Uh, we've got Sarah Sundin, who writes amazing World War II fiction, Jennifer Dibel, who writes great uh, fiction set in Ireland, particularly, but kind of all around that region, and then Laura France, who writes amazing fiction that's all over the place, really, though, kind of colonial time period um, in different parts of the U.S. So I thought how we could start is with each of you talking about just a little bit about who you are and your next book that's coming out. And Laura, we'll start with you because you have the book that's coming out the soonest. Right, January 3rd. I'm so excited. It, it's so fun to begin a new year with a new book. And this is my second Scottish novel. I uh, My previous one was A Bound Heart, and it had half the action set in Scotland. And then we had those characters sail for colonial America, colonial Virginia. I tend to, to get real excited and stay in one place in Virginia. But this book um, lets me write in the Scottish setting entirely. So I think you have 400 or some pages entirely in the Scotland. The novel opens in France, then moves to England, then moves to Scotland. So in a quick little um little book blurb it's it's basically set in 1715 where you have an English heiress who flees to the Scottish lowlands it's a very um political time lots of upheaval and you you have a, a Scottish laird as a hero and a, a Northumberland heiress as our heroine and there's lots of historical fireworks so there so fun. And you and Pepper Basham went with some readers to Scotland. So I'll have to talk about that too, because I know you probably got all kinds of ideas and layers while you were there. But Jennifer, your book is set primarily in like a boarding school type of environment. So tell us a little bit more about you and uh, this book that's coming out in February. So The Maid of Bowling Cool is set to release on February 21st. And this was a really interesting story to write because um, like you said, it is set at a boarding school. Um, Bally McCool House is an actual um, manor house that's located in County Donegal, just outside of Letterkenny. And um, it was the home, historically, it was the home of one of the ascendancy class families, which was sort of this upper crust society that formed after Ireland um, gained their independence. So the story set in 1935, but Bally McCool is sort of this time warp that's sort of been held back from any um, modern developments. And so it feels much older. 
Um, and so we follow the story of Brianna Kelly, who has lived on the grounds of the boarding school her entire life. She was left as an infant on the doorstep of the headmistress, Maureen McGee, and has worked basically as the lowest scullery maid um, there for her whole life. And the older she got, has gotten, the more um, the headmistress has sort of been animistic towards her and just really treated her unkindly and it gets worse and worse the older she is and now she's 21 and she really just feels stuck she's never been off the grounds and she just has this burning pull to do more and be more but she doesn't really see how she can get there and so um the hero is Michael Ray, whose family is also one of the ascendancy class families on the other side of Letter Kenny. His cousin has been sent to Bally McCool boarding school uh, because she has basically burned all of her bridges in her home of Dublin County. And so they tried to get her as far away from there as possible. And now she's come to Bally McCool and she's starting all kinds of problems. So her cousin <laughs> Michael has been sent to kind of tamp down her behavior as well as kind of act as a bodyguard because some of the girls at the school are sort of not so happy with him. So um, he runs into Brianna, him and Brianna keep running into each other on the grounds, um, sometimes quite literally. And he's very drawn to her and he's not really sure why, like she's beautiful of course, but there's something else about her that he just can't place. And so as the story goes on, they sort of form this. Um, unlikely friendship and he ends up helping her kind of unravel some of the threads of her past and sort of so there's themes of identity and belonging and family and um, purpose and all of that so it's kind of got a Cinderella type vibe to it um, so yeah it was really interesting to write. Sounds really fun and it's a perfect segue to Sarah's book because Sarah's is set in Denmark just a few years later during World War II and Sarah, you do such a marvelous job with World War II. What drew you to this particular story? Well, The Sound of Light is set in Denmark in World War II, and I was drawn to it because I kept, as I'm doing my general research for my other books, I kept reading these stories of what was happening in Denmark during the war. And some of the most amazing stories of World War II have come out of Denmark, and I wanted to tell the story. And so it was twofold. First of all, I was reading about the rescue of the Danish Jews, which is a mm -hmm. phenomenal, inspiring story. Of, if you hear a really uplifting story of something that came out of World War II, that's your story. And that's the one I really, really wanted to tell. And basically, they were able to, once the Germans decided to deport, they were going to deport all the Jews in Denmark on a single day during um, Rosh Hashanah, and just really cynical. And the people of Denmark just rose up as one and said, you will not do this to our countrymen. And they transported them almost all, almost all of them they transported to the waters. And I read of a story of a man named Newt Christensen, who was an Olympic rower. And he was literally rowing people across to Sweden. And I thought, ooh, that is a story I want to tell. So I made up my hero, and his name is Henrik Elefeld, and he is inspired by Newt Christensen. He's not quite the same, but he is also an Olympic rower. And when the when the war comes, when the Germans invade, and he's been living this playboy life, he's just his dissolute lifestyle, his life's a mess. And when the Germans come, it's just kind of a shocker moment to him, and he realizes, I don't want to keep living like this. 
So he decides to help his friend. He rows his friend to Sweden and decides to help him row resistance messages across the waters. But to do so, he can't do that as Henrik Ehlefeldt because everybody knows who he is and he's a rower so that he knows that the Nazis will come for him. So he takes on a secret identity. So I get to do a secret identity story and becomes Hemming Anderson, who is a ship, a humble shipyard worker. And he basically plays, um, you know, like he's not very bright because that way he doesn't have to talk a lot and people don't know how, how well culture he is. But he moves to his boarding house in 1943 and he meets um, Dr. Elsa Jensen, who is a, phys- a physicist, a nuclear physicist of all things at, um, at Niels Bohr's Institute for Theoretical Physis- Physics. And Niels Bohr is a real um, person. He was a Nobel Prize winner. And he also has an interesting story during the war. So I was able to combine these things. So Elsa, um, as a woman, is roped into doing dumb things like making copies because, you know, you're a girl, you know, you're a secretary, you shouldn't be a physicist. So she, but that puts her in a position when her friend wants her to um, print resistance papers, she already has access to the mimeograph. So she begins printing these papers. But so meanwhile, Henrik and Elsa are drawn to each other, um, but she's wondering, like, you know, he's this not terribly bright shipyard worker. And he's looking at her, it's like, I'm interested in her, but I can't let her know who I am. So it's this wonderful story of forbidden, you know, love and forbidden attraction, I should say. And um, it was a horribly fun story to tell. As you can tell, I've been babbling for the past few minutes. That's so much fun. And I think for all of us, when we're writing, there's usually some spark that gets us going and gets us wondering. And so sometimes it can be that you're researching another book and then you find this thread that you're like, oh, I have to come back to that. And it's there's discovery is just so much fun. So Laura, how did you discover your book? How did you discover the hook that made you go, I have to tell this story? Truly, it's like, I have to tell it. Well, I had grown up all my life knowing that I was, um, our family had been into ancestry and we had this genealogy, you know, this fancy chart and you grow up and it's just normal to you. Well, it wasn't until a few years ago that the chart suddenly became fascinating to me. It was like, like I was magnetized to it. And, and I realized kind of, although I'd grown up knowing it, that my sixth great grandfather, you know, was a um, nobleman in Scotland, in the lowlands. There were several castles associated with that family. They fought in the Jacobite uprising of of 1715. They lost. They were considered traitors to the crowns. They had to forfeit their titles, their lands, their castles, and they came to America, which is why I'm here. (laughs) So um, that was the inspiration, and it just started me on um, a kind of a, a wild ride of research for two years, finding out more about this family that was my family, but I, you know, I had to grow up to kind of appreciate it. So there you go. That was the the germ that inspired the, uh, the little kernel that inspired that novel. And it's so fun because it's got such a personal connection where you're like, yes. these are my people. This is my family. Yes. My heritage. That's got to just have been so much fun. It was wonderful. Yeah. Well, and I know that when I think about like the book I'm writing right now and I'm researching frantically, I kind of, I 
I would say I'm, I'm building the plane as I'm flying it, you know, I, I'm building the plot as I'm writing it, which isn't my preferred style, as Sarah knows. But, you know, sometimes you do and you just, you find that research, research, resource where you're like, oh, okay, now I can actually tell the story. Have any of you had that moment where you were like, I think I've got a story and I'm writing it and I'm not sure it's going to come together. And then you found that thing, that article, yeah. that person, that, that hook where you're like, oh my gosh, now it's all going to come together. And so what was it for this book? What was it for the book that's coming out that you were like, this is it? So I don't know, Sarah, do you have one that you're like thinking of? Um, I'm not thinking of one specifically, um, but it was, the, the research for this one was a little harder. Um, the Danes are very modest people. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are like, oh, what I did during the war isn't that important. Then you hear the stories like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. So a lot of them didn't record their stories. And Yad Vashem, when they named um, them Righteous Among the Nations, named the entire Danish, you know, the Danish people Righteous Among the Nations, because most of the people were like, well, you know, they didn't come forward and tell their stories. So because they were modest and didn't tell their stories, finding resources is a little harder. And mm -hmm. the resources are in Danish and don't speak Danish. <laughs> so it was a little bit more challenging finding books. Um, some of the best books or the on the Danish resistance in English are out of print. So, but I was able to find some used copies. And so I was able to, to, to cobble them together, but it was interesting working with different sources. So I, I think the one that I was the most excited about was one by um, Jern Haystrup, and I'm part of my mangling the Danish, um, about the, the secret alliance. And it, it's all about the Danish resistance. And it, it's considered the, the you know, seminal work on the Danish resistance. And I, I, you know, I was, I basically hung out on Amazon until copies came by and grabbed them you know, awesome because they are out of print. But. Yeah, it is crazy, especially when we're writing these books that are back in time, you know, finding that right book makes all the difference, but then getting access to it can be yeah. so hard because mm -hmm. I found a couple that have been written by Monuments Men, but they're out of print. And if you're going to buy them used, they're like 150 bucks. Yeah. Um, so I'm grateful that I work at a you know, tier one research university where I can get access through either they have it or interlibrary loan. But yeah. Jennifer, what are some of the kind of crazy things you found that you're like, this is it, this is going to help the story come together? Yeah, when you asked the question, I was like, I, oh my gosh, like immediately I knew. And it's hard because I can't give too much away because it's one mm -hmm. of the like key things that ties the story together. Um, but when I was originally brainstorming this book, I actually had it set at Kylemore Abbey, which is one of the most recognizable um, buildings in all of Ireland, and it did serve as a boarding school for a long time. Um, and then one day as I was scrolling Instagram, I saw this reel that was drone footage of this ruined out manor house covered in ivy, and it just had this sort of dark and twisty vibe to it. And I was like, oh my gosh, where is this? So I found the little pin they put on it, and I went and looked it up, and it was Bally McCool House. So I fell down the research rabbit hole, and I, I found that, um, it, like I said before, it was a historical place. Um, a family actually lived there, one of the ascendancy class families. And then during um, the Irish War for Independence, it was actually overrun by a few different troops and the family was ousted and the, the troops that took over um, actually looted a lot of the family heirlooms. And there was this one piece that was tied all the way back to Mary Queen of Scots that they never found. And I thought, oh my gosh, what if 
this gets found in the story. Like I want to tell the story of that artifact of like what happened to it all those years ago. And what was really fun was right at that time that I found that piece, my sister-in-law had been doing a bunch of genealogy work and she found that my husband's family actually has direct ties all the way back to Mary Queen of Scots. And I thought, okay, that it's meant to be, this must be like the central part of my story. So, um, and I wish I could spill the beans about how it all comes together. Cause it's just so much fun. Um, but that was, um, sort of the catalyst for the full direction. I kind of had this sort of amorphous idea of my story. And then once I found that, I was like, okay, this is what's going to happen. And so the Letterkenny Historical Society, thankfully, has a ton of resources online about the families in that area, about the house, about all that kind of stuff. So that was one of my websites that I sort of camped out on, always had multiple tabs open from, from their site. Yeah, I, right now I've got Pinterest with all the pins on it, and I keep going back to it to be like, okay, so what does that look like? And where's this? And so, Laura, when you're doing research like that, yours is even more in the past than the rest of us who write more around like that World War II, 30s, 40s time period. What kind of unique challenges does that give you when well, you're, you're trying to write nice. story? <laughs> you're nice to include me because you have to step way back in history. It is very unique. You know, the, 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 the more recent history is more accessible. My family for this novel, because they were traitors to the crown, there was actually quite a bit written about them. You know, so often we don't know who our ancestors are, but if you're a bad boy or labeled a bad boy, there, there's going to be some record of it somewhere usually. So that was hugely helpful to me. There, there are multiple volumes written on my sixth great grandfather. So, and he was a good upstanding God-fearing man. I'm glad he wasn't, you know, a real rebel rascal, a, a, a rogue that needs to be redeemed. He just had his political uh, alliances in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. And, um, but anyway, it's it's a challenging century. Notice I try not to, to venture out of the 18th century because there's such a thing as accumulated knowledge. And I'm sure you all can agree, if you stay in one time period, not that you're an expert on it, but you you just amass knowledge so that you're not frantically, you know, I know what they wore for the most part. You know, I know what they were eating. I know what current events were happening, what was, what was you know, hot in medicine and literature, you know, what was going on with church and religion. So you, you know, it, it saves you a lot of time. So for this book, I think I have two books in the 19th century, 18th or 19th century, yes. And but all the rest of my novels, I think that would be 12 or 18th century. So I just rely on that accumulated knowledge. But for the challenge for this novel was that it was set in Scotland. And I am telling the story through an American lens. You know, I've, I'm, I wasn't blessed to have lived there like Jennifer. You know, but Sarah and I have visited multiple times or the countries that we, I think we write about. But um, you know, it's, you still have that American lens. So you have to tell it, you know, with that, with that in mind, it's a flawed book. There's flawed research. I'm sure though, I tried my hardest and, um, but, but I love the story, you know, it flawed and all. <laughs> and I do think there's a lot of truth in there and a lot of family history. Absolutely. And I think that's actually really important for us to recognize is one of the books that 
I turned in this year was set in Germany right after the war. Mm -hmm. But because I'd been in Germany for two months in one of the towns that was devastated by the war, I had a slightly different perspective than I would have if I'd just been right. from a purely US perspective. And even then, it's still like, I still know that, okay, I'm not getting everything they went through, but it's, it's hard to go, okay, I've got my 21st century first world um, perspective. And even to think about in England, they were under rationing into the 50s after the war yes. ended. And so, and here in the United States, there was rationing, but then the war ends and pretty quickly things start moving back to normal. And so it is, it's such an important recognition that no matter how hard we try, there's always going to be a little bit of a modern flair, a modern take, uh, whatever country we're from perspective on what happened in the events. And so that's where I like to, I just, I feel like we can just research and research and research. And then at a certain point we have to go, well, this is as good as we can do, but we've done our due diligence. We've done the best we could with what's available to us. So what's the craziest thing that you've ever found or the craziest book you've ever bought. So for example, um, the novella that I wrote that's coming out next year, it, it's, it's the Monuments Men in Germany right after World War II. And I found out that the US government actually took 202 paintings from Germany for safekeeping after the war and took them on tour in the US. And so I ended up buying a book from an Ohio museum that did this whole Thing about it um, where it has like even like how many people at each city in the U.S. went and saw the art while it was on tour because that's now coming into the novel I'm writing right now where they're kind of connected even though it's contemporary and so that's kind of I'm like I just bought a book that is solely on the U.S. tour of these 202 German art pieces in a two-year period after World War II Probably not very many people can say that's the type of book they have on their bookshelf. <laughs> now, do you have anything similar where you're like, this is kind of a little esoteric or really in a niche that uh, people might not anticipate as writers we would accumulate? So many. <laughs> I'm looking at my book, my bookshelf is right in my line of like, oh, yeah, that one, that one, that one, that one. Um, for this particular book, um, I've got um, a, a history of Niels Bohr, and um, which is written by one of his um, graduate students. Or, and so he's a physicist. And so a lot of it is like the history of physics. Now, I was a chemistry major, but this literally like reactivated all my college night, you know, the nightmares that you still have to <laughs> graduate. And it always, for me, has to do with quantum chemistry. It was the, the worst class I took in college. It, I never understood it. And this book, I mean, Niels Bohr's, he was in the forefront of quantum mechanics. So I'm revisiting all the stuff that I never understood. And so ironically, I was understanding it way better. I should have had that book way back in college. But so I'm, I'm rereading about the history of physics and about quantum mechanics. And I, I this is crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah. And then the book I'm writing right now, which has a, it's set in England during the Blitz, and he is a BBC correspondent. And I just bought a ridiculous, rather expensive, um, out of print book about the history of the BBC during the war. <laughs> it's like, that, that's pretty specific. <laughs> and those are the books I won't get rid of because I would have thought I'd never write another World War II. And I wrote two this year, and this contemporary has huge World War II threats. So I'm like, you hang on to them. 
because they're hard to find and they get expensive. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, how about you? Do you have one where you're like, oh, people would never believe this is a book I've read? (laughs) Uh, Yes, it's um, a memoir of a modern Irish matchmaker (laughs) that was co-written. It's really an interesting read because you can kind of tell that, and, and he's so... The story I'm writing right now is um, set during the Listoon Varna Matchmaking Festival, which still goes on today. And so this memoir is of this third generation matchmaker who's still alive today, still making matches. And it's like the history of matchmaking in Listoon Varna. And you can just tell that this is the quintessential older Irish man spinning his yarns at the pub. And then some like co-writer had to make it work as a book. So it was really interesting reading because I could almost hear this, you know, like as he was being served up another pint and um, just the craziest things happen in his stories. And you never know, can can you actually believe this or not? So that's one of those. And then ironically, it seemed really um, strange to me that it's only available on ebook. I feel like that should be some like tattered old <laughs> paper book, but yeah. Oh, that's so funny. I can just imagine. I want to know how many of the matches worked, though. You know, like long-term? Yeah, he he claims, <laughs> he claims that most of his do. Um, he has this book that if you, if you search Ireland matchmaking, this will be the first thing that comes up. He has this book that was his father's and his grandfather's and his great-grandfather's. It's this old tattered thing that he has tied up, and it's got a record of every match they've ever made. And he claims that if you lay your hands on the book and close your eyes for like seven seconds and make a wish or say a prayer or something that within, um, he has two different promises. One is that like within 30 days, you'll be in love. And then if you do this extra step within three months, you'll be happily married or something like that. And he claims, he claims that it, that it works. I just watched a movie about that. That's so interesting. It was just in the fall, it was about a town in Ireland and the matchmaking festival. So they must have been inspired by that history. Uh, it has to be. Was that the one with um, with Alan Leach in it? Uh, yes, I think so. I want to watch that one so bad. I don't have the Hallmark channel. Oh, <laughs> shucks. It was good. Uh, it was but I kind of feel like I yeah. probably shouldn't watch it till after I'm done yeah. writing because I'm afraid I don't I accidentally steal something. The book yeah. is better. so Laura how about you do you have any of those like oh my gosh people wouldn't believe this is something I've read or some experience I've had for my books well you know it's as embarrassing as it is the the 18th century was just horribly unhygienic so and they had just an aversion to bathing and I'm I try to um you know, you have to downplay that in your book, especially a historical romance. I mean, in all reality, the heroes stank <laughs> and the heroine probably didn't, didn't uh, fare much better. Although my, my people are clean, my characters are clean. But I mean, I have books about that, you know, and just, you know, that I think one of the strangest things is we think, you know, well, way back then there, were, there wasn't a lot of uh, people coming together. There wasn't a lot of illegitimate uh, pregnancies and things like that, that, that is not the case. There was a thing called bundling where they would put the prospective 
bride and groom in bed together and everybody would leave them alone. There were some very strange courting customs. So I have, you know, all kinds of that peppering my bookshelves. Um, fascinating reading. I don't know that anybody else would really be interested, but it certainly enriches the novel. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's all part of building that base that you were talking about. That's why I write contemporary and World War II. Like that, I'll do like 1936 to 19, maybe 50. Yeah. I haven't gotten there yet, but it's like, I have this base of knowledge and people who write a different book in a different time period, every time I'm like, I couldn't, there's just, there's so much layering. And if you care about getting the history and the feel and the dynamics right, it takes a lot of work to get it all to come together. Yeah, you know, it does. It's almost like a degree, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I really feel like we could all be like, we have an associate's degree in our area yeah. of history. Yeah. You know, right. At least. In I history, think so. <laughs> so. I think most of us have traveled on research for our books. Um, I end up, I usually end up writing my international books after I've traveled. Like I didn't know. So I ended up to these research trips. It's more like I've been there and then like I want to write a book. But I want to know what are, like if, each of you pick one or two places that if you were going to organize a trip, where would you tell people they absolutely have to go to get the flavor of your books? So for me, um, even though I wrote my Monuments Men book after, I went to Italy after I'd written my Monuments Men book, I would be like, you've got to go to Florence, you got to go to the Uffizi and the garden that's right there, which I'm blanking on the name right now, because those are so central. I still want to get to Monte Gufuni. But it's very hard to find a rental car in Italy big enough for our family. So I have mm -hmm. not been yet. But that would be the other place. I'm like, if you want to feel like you've been to the places in Shadowed by Grace, those would be the ones to go to. So Laura, where would you tell people that they have to go to get the flavor for your Scottish books? Well, it, you know, it's my favorite city. And no, I've not been to every city around the globe. But I keep returning to Edinburgh. I love and, Edinburgh. Oh my goodness. I've never met anybody that doesn't love that city. It's just magical. And I've seen it in different seasons, you know, summer, fall, spring. I was there in a snowstorm, which was like being in the middle of a snow globe. It was just incredible. So that city, you know, it's not just full of Edinburghers or however you say that. It, it draws from all over Scotland. It, it has quite an international population too. But, you know, at one time, a hundred years ago, it didn't. Um, but it's just, it's the best of Scotland. I mean, you walk the mile from Edinburgh Castle to Holyrood Palace, and you just, you get a, a dose of, of all these centuries. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine, you know, you're standing on cobbles that are hundreds of centuries old, and you, it, it's, I had a friend recently or a, a reader say, I, I, oh, here's the one. I, I don't want to visit Edinburgh because it has such a bloody history. It does, but doesn't every major city have that same thing, you know? But I said, don't let, don't let it deprive you of the joy of it and the history of it. So Edinburgh. For me. Oh, it's, and it's so beautiful. Like Arthur's seat, oh. and, you know, that hike up there. And yes. it's such a charming, charming place. And the scones and the tea. Oh, the potted cream. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yes. All right, Sarah, where would you send people? Because your books lately have been all over Europe. So where would you I send know. Them? And ironically, um, I, you know, in the past, I've gone to almost every place that my books have been set. 
And I think the, the exception at that point was I had a, a series with flight nurses who were based in North Africa. And I was writing those during Arab Spring. So, yeah, not visiting. But I did go to Italy which and Southern France, where m- most of those stories were set, too. So I was able to visit those. But um, I had three different trips to Copenhagen scrapped due to oh. So I have never been to Copenhagen. It's driving me bonkers. And I was, we were even hoping we can get there at least during when I was doing my final edit so I could get that flavor in. And I did that when I went, when I wrote um, my novel, The Sea Before Us. And we went to, my trip to England was scheduled during my editing phase. And Mm -hmm. I went and visited um, Suffolk House, which is where they did a lot of the D-Day planning. And I, I couldn't find a floor plan online, but we visited it. And it was completely different than I imagined and wrote. And so I'm emailing my editor, can I change this? And she's like, yeah, please. So I was able to get the details from that in. So I was hoping to do the same thing for this book, you know, getting there and being in the streets and get the feel for it. Because I I really, that adds so much to a book. And for this book, I was not able to get it. And um, so I, like Laura was saying, it's, you know, the book is flawed. There's research holes. And I, I know that with this book because I have not been there. I haven't gotten that true flavor of Denmark. I did the best as I could with the research and understand that entire book about the, the Danish culture, you know, how they, how they view things and how they, and, and so I tried to get in as deep as I could, but it is not the same as actually being there. So um, uh, if I were to go, <laughs> I have a lot of lists of places I want to go. Basically, just walking around downtown Copenhagen. It's a beautiful city. Um, have to see the Little Mermaid statue, which actually inspires uh, my hero in this book. Um, there's a museum of the Danish resistance, which my one of my good friends was actually in Copenhagen a few months ago, and she took a whole bunch of pictures, and it was amazing. And I, I want to go up the coast where Henrik has his um, villa, his beautiful seaside villa and i want to see that i based it on a real building which actually was used um, for the resistance so i i, I want those are the places i want to see that'll be your dessert sarah sorry that'll be your dessert yeah yeah i hope so someday <laughs> well and when we were in berlin in may um one of the places I went to, one of those spur of the moment little places we'd walked by that I ran through and Eric didn't even go with me, which kind of surprised me because usually he's up for any museum, but it was the Museum of the German Resistance. Oh. And, you know, those sometimes because it's so easy, if you're not there, you kind of get in your head, everybody was this way to, about Nazism or this way. And it was so fascinating because they had 16 different groups that were resisting in different ways and so you know it's there's something about going there and walking through the exhibits and picking up the information that you know I love Google I love being able to walk down the street but you're right there's something about actually being there and going oh I want to run in there oh I want to see what's around that corner that just can make such a difference so sometime maybe we'll go to Copenhagen together that would be awesome (laughs) and Jennifer where would you tell people to go I think because my my books kind of so far, the first book was in Donegal, second book was Galway City, third book is Donegal. Um, so I would say do a tour of the Gale talked areas, which are the rural areas where Irish is the first language still of the majority of people. That way you get outside, you get beyond the Blarney, you get beyond Dublin, because let's face it, Dublin is amazing, but Dublin is not Irish. Like Dublin is Dublin, it's its own thing. Um, So I would love for people to go way out into Guidor on the coast and 
walk on the beaches, visit the pubs, have a Sunday roast. Um, you have to walk down the shop street in Galway. Um, Galway is just such a magical city. There's so much music and culture and art. And I think a lot of people don't really expect that from Ireland. Um, they kind of put it in this box of it's this type of music and that's it. But it's just, it's such an experience to get the, the smells and the sounds of the buskers on the street. And like Laura said, the cobblestones that have been there forever. Galway still has their actual shopping mall. One of the walls is one of the walls, the original like medieval walls that surrounded the city when it was first built. And there's just history around every corner. So that would be my my advice is to get a tour of all the Gale Talked areas. That's amazing. Well, and for those of you who've been listening and watching, hopefully now you have a flavor of the types of books and the history and places that these ladies are setting their stories in. And they are all incredible writers and I can't recommend their books enough. So The Rose and the Thistle by Laura comes out in January, 2023. The Sound of Light by Sarah comes out in February, 2023. And The Maid of Valley McCool uh, comes it's written by Jennifer and will come out in February 2023 as well. So thanks so much for joining me, ladies. It was always so great to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, remember you can join us live on my Facebook page on Tuesday evenings at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for the next conversation. I'd also be grateful if you'd leave a review on your favorite platform. I love to hear from you, so be sure to leave a comment on this episode's show page at caraputman.com, and you can also interact with me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And don't forget, when you join my e-newsletter, I send you a copy of Dying for Love, the novella that launches the Hidden Justice series, as my gift to you. Thanks again for tuning in.